Congratulations, everyone. Day two. And I assume you did a really good job today. How I could tell that, I don't know, but I think you were all working pretty hard doing your practice. Sometimes, you know, we look out from here and see the sea of faces. Sometimes you look a little too grim. I don't know if anybody's told you, but it's not necessary to be really grim in meditation. If you look at this guy, you know, he's smiling. So I guess you could look at at that as 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 a goal, to become someone who can watch their own mind and explore the world and still smile as it all as it all goes past i was reminded of my first uh, retreat i was 26 years old i had a degree from a good american university i had done some therapies gestalt and psychoanalysis But nobody in my culture told me that you could actually develop this quality, this part of your mind, this thing we call mindfulness. Step outside of your own psyche and observe yourself. And that first look was pretty disturbing. (laughs) You know, the instructions were simple, like they are here. Just pay attention to your breath. Seems like the simplest thing to do. You start paying attention to your breath. Realize that your mind continues to plan and have fantasies and make comments and without even consulting you, you know, it's it's like it has a mind of its own. When I first uh, started meditating, I had just come from being a newscaster at a rock and roll radio station. So my mind was filled with songs. And they would pop into my head for some random reason and quite often repeat over and over again. I, I really thought I was going crazy. I couldn't, I couldn't turn them off. Sometimes a song that was on an album side that I was familiar with. We used to have albums. Uh, <laughs> my mind would track through the whole album side. I mean, I wasn't doing anything. It was playing in the background. Sometimes it would flip the album over and play the other side. It was really, really insidious. I really thought I was, I was, I was going crazy. And then the music kind of faded, and, uh, and then the talk shows, you know, the, my finances and my love life and all that. As they say, self-knowledge is often bad news. (laughs) The good news, the good news is that I was starting to see how my reality is created, which is just about the most important thing you you can understand. The good news was that I was learning how my mind works. 
And I was beginning to, to see the source of my suffering. What a gift. What a strange and wonderful gift. What we're looking at here in meditation practice is the human condition. And I think it's really useful to have that as an understanding. Yes, you're looking at your own individual mind with its own individual issues and, and people and uh, all the details, but it's basically the same mind as the person sitting next to you. And if you exchanged minds with the person sitting next to you, it would probably be pretty similar, even the issues. I mean, we're all sharing a culture, we're all sharing a historical moment. We're not only sharing a, a moment in human history, we're sharing a biological moment. I mean, that's, that's really the exciting thing, that we're, we're doing a practice that's just a couple thousand years old, uh, of of self-awareness and self-investigation uh, that may represent the, the awakening of our species and maybe it'll happen in time to save us from a whole lot of suffering down the road. But I, I like the, the, the idea that we are looking at our common mind and that we are doing this practice for our species, not just for ourselves. So as we meditate, we often run into some difficulties, some difficult mind states. Some of them are so common, they're, they're listed. You know, there's a list of common, troubling mind states. I want to talk to you a little bit about that tonight. Uh, they're called the hindrances. Five of them, essentially. Desire, our old friend. Aversion, those two, the, you know, the two, two of the three poisons. Uh, sloth and torpor, a public interest law firm. <laughs> Restlessness and doubt. And these are so common, they're listed and uh, examined in the, in the texts, and we uh, examine them as we do practice. How many of you have uh, had any one or a number of those? Yeah, see, that's, that should give you a hint. Don't take it personally. This is what it means to be incarnated as a human. And the first thing that I like to acknowledge is, is that I am perfectly human. It's one of my mantras. So let's examine desire and aversion together because they're really two sides of the same coin. And every living being has some form of it. It's not like it's wrong. It's not like it's bad. You can think of uh, desire as the tree reaching for the sun. Desire as the hunger that 
grows inside of you when you don't eat and then for, makes you go out and look for food. Where would we be without desire? There would be no procreation. There, you know, it would, it would be over. Even the single-celled being has a little membrane that it extends when there's food in the vicinity and retracts when there's some kind of danger. It's almost integral to the definition of life, desire, and aversion. Long before Darwin and Freud discovered uh, the pleasure principle, the Buddha understood how hardwired these instinctual movements, these instinctual uh, mind states are. He called them underlying tendencies. He said, if there's something pleasant, you're going to want more. If you catch it, you can maybe uh, temper your response or your reaction. But if not, the desire for more will lead to clinging and uh, you'll be lost. You will, you will be swept along by that instinct that you inherit from the dim past of your, of your ancestors, of your species, your, your mammalian self, if you will. Likewise, aversion, if there's something, you know, painful, fearful, you try to avoid it. You move back. It keeps you from leaving your hand on a hot stove, aversion. In some way, they are integral to survival, and you have to bow deeply to them. The Buddha's great breakthrough was to see that this uncontrolled impulse, these uncontrolled uh, instincts, are really the source of our suffering. And he also saw that you could actually begin to observe them in action and lessen their force, begin to gain a little bit of freedom, a little bit of choice in that whole process. This is... uh, neuroscientist Melvin Connor, the motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. That's kind of the state that we're given. That's the condition we're born into. The exciting thing is that we can perhaps see clearly how the knots are tied, how the reactions happen, and find some ease.
The Buddha said, the first insight is that the thirst of craving is the basis of our suffering. The second insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is created. So as we begin to see the dissatisfaction of the mind up close and personal, we have to remember that it's not a failure to see it happening. It's a triumph. It's the beginning of our freedom. I know it, it can be a shock. The pervasiveness of desire and aversion. You're sitting there. Your leg hurts. Aversion. You want the bell to ring. Desire. The bell rings. You move your leg and have a moment of ah, and then immediately, and now we have a walking period. Aversion. Maybe I'll go back to my room and look at my stuff. Desire. <laughs> it's like never ending. It's just, uh, and the mind has no shame. Have you ever been somewhere and desired to be there where you already were? Maybe with just a little bit of difference, with a little, maybe with a somebody else or somebody different or the conditions a little different, a few degrees warmer would have been nice, but it's a great haiku. I'm in Kyoto, yet I long for Kyoto. So as we examine our minds, the great revelation is that the suffering we have does not come from the fact that the latest desire is unfulfilled. It comes from the desire wheel itself, which keeps spinning and attaching itself to object after object, idea after idea, fantasy after fantasy. The first insight is that the thirst of craving is the basis of our suffering. The second insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is created. And what's really exciting, and it happens, I bet it will happen to you at some point in this retreat. You will have a moment maybe, maybe even two moments, where the desire wheel has slowed down and stopped. And you will get to experience what the Buddha called the highest happiness, which is a mind at rest. A state which most people don't ever get to realize. It's rare. And uh, it's pretty sweet to have a mind without desire. Take a session and uh, really focus on how often the mind moves, either toward or away from something. How much of that kind of activity is going on in the mind and the body. It's interesting. It's, it's part of what we can do in the, in the retreat is, is really examine how our reality is created and how, what leads us to 
suffering and what brings us ease and relief. And if you don't want desire or aversion to to have to have it, you you definitely are on the wrong planet. A little story, I happened to be visiting in Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama rules from and holds uh, as a house. His house is there. And and, uh, I was on my way to the airport. I was flying out uh, of Dharamsala back to New Delhi. And all along the road, all along the way to the airport, there were Tibetans with flowers, and they were, I thought they were waving at me. I waved back at them. But it turned out the Dalai Lama was at the airport with an entourage, and he was actually flying also back to, to New Delhi that day. And it was a small plane. It was like an 18-seat plane. And, and uh, he got on, and uh, Terry was reading his autobiography, where it says the Dalai Lama is afraid of horses and flying. And uh, he sat a few rows behind me, and every time I looked at him, he was deathly pale and visibly shaking and leaning against the window. He had cotton in his ears. He's doing his mantra, you know, Om Mani Padme and. And flying over the foothills of the Himalayas is very rocky, bumpy. And I felt a lot more safe having him in the plane with me, but <laughs> he, he obviously was not having a good time. It's wonderful to point out the flaws of those, you know, examples of somehow perfection, who are really just as human as we are. And he loves to point it out. Another common mind state we encounter in our practice is doubt. I think actually a better word is uncertainty, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Our minds do not like uncertainty. It's a form of fear. We want to know what's going to happen. We want... We want the security of knowing what's going to happen. And it's too bad because we never know what's going to happen. And we kind of know that. We kind of know that anything can happen at any time. That used to be one of Joseph Goldstein's mantras. Anything can happen at any time. Typhoons and cyclones and hurricanes and just, you know, any number of things can happen. So a lot of uh, how doubt appears in the mind is a lot of planning and a lot of uh, judging, trying to judge uh, our plans and our scenarios, how are we going to make this happen without any harm or injury to us. And, And of course, the biggest doubt we have is about ourselves. It seems we all want to be loved and revered or acknowledged or feel secure, valued. So we continually are asking ourselves, how am I doing? How am I showing up today? 
Where, where do I rank in the pecking order today? It's a constant. At least it has been for me. It's a, uh, it's a form of, self, of, of doubt that is kind of endemic in our, uh, our culture. Our culture sets us up for self-doubt. It's a culture of individualism where you make it or break it on your own. You're on your own. Uh, there, are, there are no conditions around what happens to you except that you create, you create it all. You create your destiny. Nobody says even God willing anymore. You know, It's not up to anybody but you, which is a setup for failure. Because you can never, you can never match the images you're shown on the, on the screen and in the magazines. You can never be rich enough or beautiful enough or hip enough or. You know you're always going to fall short, and it's all your fault because you created yourself. Mark Twain said, "The more we think we create ourselves, the more disappointed we will be." Alfred Adler, famous psychologist from the last century, said, to be human is to feel inferior. One of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, always used to say, you Westerners, you're suffering from high-class suffering. So a lot of what we're doing is to learning how to be comfortable with some of this doubt, the wisdom of insecurity, Alan Watts called it. You know, can you be present with insecurity of not knowing, of not knowing, you know, anything for sure, either uh, intellectually or about what's going to happen to the world? In meditation retreat, sometimes you can doubt the practice. You know, boy, the breath is so boring. And, you know, it's, where is this getting me? There's no, there's no lights yet, and there's no, you know, ecstasy. I don't feel like dancing particularly. Uh, maybe I should have gone to the Sufi camp. <laughs> and there's doubt about the teachers. I mean, we aren't in robes. Uh, I ignore that doubt. Don't, you know. (laughs) Like a good cult leader, I'll say, ignore any doubts about me. (laughs) Even with the doubting mind, you have to give it a little bow, an inner bow. It's trying to take care of you, the doubt. It's trying to make sure you survive. And that's really, I think, one of the key to approaching difficult mind states without being at war with them, without being at war with yourself, which is really an integral part of yourself, is to acknowledge what they're there for. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, believe in them, follow their their. Direction, 
So final two hindrances, restlessness and sloth and torpor, we'll, I'll consider them just briefly uh, as, as two sides of uh, energetic mind states. Uh, sloth and torpor, listlessness, low energy. We often feel that the first few days of a retreat, and the main reason is we are tired. It's not easy being a citizen of a superpower. It's not easy being a hunter and gatherer in this society. Everybody's working way too hard. Everybody's multitasking. Even though we barely know how to do it, we're all kind of trying to do it. We get to a retreat, we stop, we suddenly stop to some degree, the mind is still spinning sort of as it slows down, but we, we, are, we realize, the body begins to realize how tired it feels. And we begin to realize how tired we really are and how deeply we need to step out of that, uh, off that wheel and, and take a deep rest. I know that you're working hard, you know, and doing your practice, but it's, there's also some kind of deep release that is going on. Multitasking. You can drive and chew gum and talk on your cell phone all at the same time. Amazing. And... The evolutionary scientists say we're, we're basically working with brains designed for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That were Brains that were developed over millions of years of being in a small tribe of hunter-gatherers. That would explain our addiction to shopping, for sure. <laughs> you know, if it's out there, you go get it. But it really, it hooks into that whole uh, imperative that we seem to carry of we have to always be doing something. We always have to be working towards something. And we come in here, we're not hunting or gathering. I mean, it, uh, we're just sitting here. Oh my God, what am I doing? I'm letting down my guard. I'm, I'm not advancing it can make you uh, either tired or restless or fearful. Coming to retreat uh, can also uh, make you feel restless because there are so few distractions and we're so used to you know, constant kinds of distractions. And we tell you to ignore you know, the ones that come up in your head your mind wants to do its job, worry, plan. No? Oh my God, it gets nervous, you know, it gets restless. I tell people that if you really, really get restless, you've got to have something, you know, to feed that hunger. Go into the, uh, into the restroom and memorize the hand-washing instructions. <laughs> It's very satisfying. It can really <laughs> ground you. 
I think that I think that meditative uh, sloth and torpor and restlessness may have some physiological roots as well. We're kind of turning down the left hemisphere, the reasoning, analytic side of the brain, and really getting in touch, opening up the more receptive side of the brain, the more intuitive, uh, the more open, less aggressive side. Restlessness is my curse. Uh, Jack uh, Cornfield keeps reminding me that nobody's ever died of restlessness. But I think that I actually did, and then I was reborn and I was still restless. <laughs> it, was, it was hard. What we all encounter in meditation which can be difficult and hard for us is the thinking mind, which kind of decorates all of our difficult mind states. I think I started meditation practice because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. It was a heavy thinker. Started thinking the minute I got up in the morning kept thinking the middle of the afternoon, had to have a couple thoughts before I went to bed at night. <laughs> Obviously, I needed an intervention. My relationship to my thinking mind has changed somewhat now over the years. We're still friends. In fact, we live together. But we're no longer quite so codependent. I've really, to some degree, to some degree, learned not to believe in all my thoughts. It's difficult, you know. Uh, our culture grades us on our ability to, th- to think, to hold concepts and move, analyze ideas and move thoughts around. And it's what we get graded on in school and We cultivate our ability to think. But the problem is all we do is focus on the content of our thoughts, and rarely do we ever look at the process of thinking. This is a Tulku Ergen, Tibetan sage of the last century, The stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person without any knowledge whatsoever about who's thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness, and the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. It's true for all humanity, but I I really think that we are uh, especially prone to that, you know, being lost in thought. Heads are us, you know. <laughs> the great Western philosopher Descartes, you know, I, I, he should have said, I think, therefore I think I am. <laughs> That's Actually, what he should have said is, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. 
But before meditation, I was completely focused on the content of thinking and not the process. And that's where the key is. Because you begin to see that the mind produces thoughts over and over again, and often the same cluster of thoughts and repeats itself. And, and it's not like you're doing it. You're, you're, as you sit in meditation, you see that this happens independent of your desire to stay out of the thinking game. That you just want to be present with your breath and your sensations of the body. And, and you really begin to have a different attitude towards the thinking mind. You're not quite so identified or codependent with it. Joseph Goldstein used to say, the thought of your mother is not your mother. (laughs) Sometimes I realize that I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thinking. What was I thinking, you know? It's really, uh, again, thinking is a great tool. It's often misunderstood by people beginning to meditate that we somehow want to get rid of all of our thoughts. No, it's not the case. We want to change our relationship and perhaps how we react to our thoughts. But thoughts are wonderful. There's nothing bad about them. Uh, Sometimes it's interesting Take a session of of sitting and see how many of your thoughts can somehow be related to your survival. So just about 100%. And and it's it's a wonderful adaptation. It's a wonderful tool. It allows us to share our understanding and our information and our skills with each other and pass them on to the next generation. I mean, thinking is is a brilliant uh, product of natural evolution. But uh, thinking can be a cruel master. I I was trying to imagine what 20,000 years ago our ancestors sitting around thinking, wonder who's going on the hunt tomorrow, who's watching the fire, what color should I paint my spear, things like that. I want to tell you about uh, this famous experiment was held by a a neuroscientist and evolutionary biologist at National Institute of Mental Health. He was studying how the brain develops in each of us as we grow in the womb and are born. Uh, we, We don't really have a brain, he discovered. We have three brains. And they develop in the same order they developed in nature. First we get a reptilian brain, the brain stem. And then uh, the limbic system or the mammalian brain grows. And then the new human brain or neocortex. And one brain doesn't override the other brains. They're all intimately interconnected. And more and more, the, the scientists are discovering through serious research 
that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> that we aren't rational animals so much as we are rationalizing animals. <laughs> that consciousness, the descriptions, the, the understandings, the verbal understandings come in late in the game. You can actually begin to see this in your, in your meditation practice. You really begin to understand these deep, uh, truths about how we're built and, and how we operate in the world. It's, a, it's such a gift to be able to see that, to understand ourselves. Okay, so moving along, moving right along. safe to say we all have these difficult mind states, uh, desire, uh, desire, aversion, doubt, restlessness, sloth and torpor, thinking mind, busy mind. We're all perfectly human. However, we each get different mixtures of difficult mind states. We get a preponderance of one or another of these mind states. We basically get a temperament. All cultures know this. All cultures have known that people are born with a particular feel to them. The early Greeks said, how you were in the world would depend on the mixture of four humors. Blood, uh, black and yellow bile, and phlegm. If you had a lot of phlegm in, your, in the mixture, you'd be phlegmatic. If you had a lot of blood in the mixture, you'd be sanguine, you'd be warm. The Chinese believe that everybody is born with a kind of mixture of yin and yang. Uh, they weren't evenly balanced. They can be worked with. That kind of energy could be worked with. The Greeks and the Chinese and several other cultures would uh, associate people with different Aspects of nature, you were stiff like wood or soft like air. Uh, you had a feel. You're born with a feel, with a temperature, a temperament. And over the centuries, of course, different cultures have come up with different typologies. We have astrology. We have the Enneagram, nine, you know, nine different personality types. Somebody said that nine ways, nine, nine ways of suffering. There's the Disney typology, dopey, sleepy, grumpy. The scientists dismiss all those old typologies, but they are, seem to be developing their own. They're looking for genes that select for different particular personality types. For instance, they found a gene that selects for novelty-seeking behavior. It has an extra-long dopamine receptor on this gene. Freud would probably have something to say about that, too, but... <laughs> It's interesting, this, this research is being headed by a man named Dr. Robert 
cloning her. But they're, searching, they're seeking genes that select for four different personality types. That's certain, currently what they're, they're working on. Novelty-seeking, reward-dependent, persistent, and pain-avoidant. The, the Harvard psychologist Jerome Kagan, he did a decades-long study and saw that infants are born with particular neurochemical mixtures that tend to stay pretty much the same through their life. He wrote a book called uh, Galen's Prophecy. He said, After many years of studying the origin and nature of temperament, I have become more forgiving of the few friends and family members who see danger too easily, rise to anger too quickly, or sink to despair too often. I no longer blame them privately and have become more accepting and less critical of their moods and idiosyncrasies. Can we accept our own temperament? Can we embrace ourselves? Oh, yes. Other species have temperaments. Scientists are studying animals from virtually every species. Studying animals from virtually every species have found evidence of distinctive personalities, bundled sets of behaviors, quirks, pet peeves that remain stable over time and across settings. They find diversity of temperament among monkeys, geese, sheep, squid, sunfish, finches, even spiders. They have identified hotheads and schmoozers, loners, dullards, fearless explorers, and they've learned that animals like us often cling to the same personality for the bulk of their lives. The daredevil chicken of today is usually the one out crossing the road tomorrow. <laughs> pretty, pretty sweet to, to kind of know that, you know. It's not just us. In the Theravada tradition, Buddhist tradition, there, there are three basic types. Greed type, delusion type, and aversion type, the three poisons. Uh, in the Visuddhi Magga, uh, a commentarial text from, the, from our tradition, des- describes the characteristic behavior of each of these three types in everyday situations, such as walking, talking, even getting ready for bed. So, quote, When they sit or lie down to go to sleep, one of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. When woken, they get up slowly, saying, Huh? (laughs) One of angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, puts their foot down quickly, and lifts it up quickly. One of greedy temperament sees even... When when one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised. They they seize on trivial virtues, discount genuine faults, etc. There's a Spanish proverb, natures and features survive to the grave. When I first started meditation, and you may have had this this fantasy or idea as well. When I first started meditation, I thought I could get myself a new personality. I thought if I meditated hard enough and long enough, I could become someone completely different, someone who would be easier to live with. (laughs) 
But over the years, I have seen that my personality pretty much stays, to some degree, similar, steady. Uh, as Ramdas says, uh, after years of doing practice and you know being devoted to my guru, and says I still have a person, my, the same personality I started with, but I now view my personality as a pet. You know, I take care of it. I'm always, it's always around. Sometimes I let it off the leash. But it's, it's not who I am. That I am the observer. I am the witness. Rumi said, what I want most is to leap out of this personality and then sit aside from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. So how do we work with these pack, this package of difficult mind states that we encounter in meditation? Essentially, the instruction is to let them have their life. When they come and take over, investigate them, maybe bow to them, let yourself feel them if they come with some strong sensations, affect a part of your body. Let them have their life. Name them. They've been seen. The minute you name them, they've been seen. They no longer have the same power over you. The Buddha's instructions for how to deal with difficult mind states was so simple. No judgment, no moral, uh, you know, problem with having hatred in your mind. He basically said the instruction in the, in the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, one knows an angry mind as an angry mind. One knows a mind with lust as a mind with lust. Not even any fix. No judgment and no fix. Except seeing clearly. As the Buddha said, this is not mine, this is not me, this is not myself. If you were in charge of your emotions, wouldn't you be happy all the time? <laughs> Would you ever have sorrow or fear? Or No. Where did it come from? It came from the fact that you're born a, a human being and a mammal. And you've got all that stuff inside of you. And we're all going to get all those emotions. So we might as well practice. Let ourselves feel them when we're sitting in meditation and, and see how we can work with them and see how, we can, how intimate we can become with them. The more intimate we are with them, the less power they have over us. The Tibetan... Buddhist teacher Tsultram Alioni teaches a practice called Chod, which I've always found fascinating. You, you imagine, you visualize cutting off the top of your head and putting your essence into this little bowl that you've created. And then you invite your difficult emotions to become demons. And you invite them to come and eat their fill 
to fill themselves up. She says, we usually don't feed our demons well enough because we don't like those parts of ourselves. In Chode practice, however, in contrast to killing the dragon, which is the usual, usual procedure in the hero's journey, we nurture the demon until the dualistic battle between ourselves and the demon disappears. We're playing in some great wonderful processes here. You're really, I, I feel so privileged to have found, found these, these practices. So let me leave you with uh, just a couple more things and then a little poem. Uh, just reminding you once again, as, as you meditate on this mind and body, realize your experience is the human condition living through you, your name on it, but basically the human condition, the mammalian condition, the living condition. Your individual human life is first and foremost life with all the constraints that life has. Secondly, it is human. Only thirdly, is it individual. Your joys and sorrows arise out of having a nervous system and a brain. So you can use my, my two mantras. You're welcome to use them. I'm perfectly human. Always works. It's only natural. Oh, that always works too. Or you can flip them around. I'm only human. It's perfectly natural. Either way. And finally, just to say, as you do this practice, forgive yourself over and over again. We are just, as a species, as I said at the beginning, waking up. We're a baby species. We just got these big brains not long ago. And we're still figuring out how to use them. And this whole uh, process of developing the mindfulness, being able to step out of the drama uh, and the story that we tell ourselves about our lives, to step out of that and really examine with this quality of clarity, uh, this mindfulness, which, you know, in some way, the Buddha was the first scientist Uh, He said, be as objective as you can be about yourself as the subject. Stand outside of the show and be a witness. Maybe, you know, go into the wilderness of yourself and explore like a naturalist. So, forgive yourself and honor your your bravery. This is Rumi again, fire and water. It's about kind of difficult mind states. A fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right, 
One group walks toward the fire, into the fire, another toward the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which are not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under the water surface and pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated by this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice in the fire tells the truth, saying, I'm not fire, I am fountainhead. Come into me and don't mind the sparks. What looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. So on that enigmatic note, let's sit for a moment together. Welcome to difficult times. They are your friends. They are the keys to your freedom. have a walking period. We'll meet back here at nine for the last. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.